Can I just say, um, it's really good to be with you this morning, and big apologies from Philippa, who would really love to be here, but she just had other commitments that no one else could do. So, uh, but we'll hope to see you again sometime soon, and be back here again sometime soon. I was so pleased when Brian asked me to come and preach, and at the same time told me that there was no particular series at this time, so I could preach on anything that God laid on my heart, I think is what he said. Um, and there's quite a lot of the Bible, actually, isn't there? So, you know, that could be pretty tricky. Uh, but it was okay this time uh, because a couple of things happened to me that made me, has made me focus on this chapter, which is probably the best-known chapter, I should think, in the Bible, apart from perhaps the uh, birth stories of Jesus. Uh, so I really want to challenge you this morning to uh, come and have a look at this story again, this reading, this chapter again. So uh, what happened was that in February, Philippa and I attended an art course, uh, which took place over three long days at Shalford Church, and we thought it was just going to be a nice relaxing time where we sort of sat and watched nice pictures that people had painted over the years, and, uh, we, you know, that was great, and we'd enjoy that and go and look at them in galleries or something later on. And the first thing they set, did was they sent us out on a very, very cold day in February. They said, you've got an hour and a half to do three pencil drawings uh, within 100 metres of the church. So apart from being very cold and very sort of nervous, and you always think that everyone else is going to do superb drawings, and they, of course they do, um, and uh, it, you know, you've got a sort of few lines on your paper and it's not that great. But anyway, you, you know, so, so we did that, uh, and it, actually it was great. And then they gave us this project, which ended up with that little book that I showed you. Uh, so, uh, as one of those, I, for, for the uh, L, I had love, and I had that's, that section from 1 Corinthians, book, uh, chapter 13, and verses 4 to 7. And I decided to display it a little bit, but not exactly like... If you just pass me your little handout, please, Dave. No, the... Uh, that thing, yeah. Uh, uh, a little bit like that. Uh, as two uh, road signs. Now, the next, there was two things that led me towards this. The other thing was that I was asked to uh, do a wedding, and I've never done a wedding before. I've preached at a wedding, um, and I've many times been a registrar at a wedding, but I have never sort of had to do all the uh, vows and all that sort of thing. And this was made a little bit more interesting because my goddaughter uh, was marrying a French person, so the vows had to be half taken in French, and my goodness me, that was a challenge, as uh, you know, there we are. But uh, it was good, and I enjoyed doing it. So that's really what led me to this passage, because in my sermon at that wedding, I really wanted to bring that message of 1 Corinthians 13 to, I'd say, 175 people, of which only two I knew were Christians, and one of those was Philippa. So, um, the, uh, and 40% and were French, so you know, I had to sort of include them somehow or other, and it was, it was a challenging time. 
But I want to challenge you this morning uh, and me to live closer to God, to follow Jesus more nearly, and to begin to love and continue to love everyone in the way that Jesus loved us. And that's a really big challenge. Now, it might be that just one word I say is the word that God wants you to hear today. Uh, or one sentence I say is what God wants you to hear today. Problem is, you've got to listen to the whole thing, or you might miss that one word, you know. So don't worry if you don't feel it all is sort of relevant to you. Uh, but I do pray that, I mean, it, it will be, and certainly it's relevant to me. Now, I don't know about you, but ever since I went to Dunsfold uh, Church on one occasion and walked through the gate of the, into the graveyard, and it said, in memory of Richard John Rowe, which it still does say there, of course, uh, I've sort of been a little bit perturbed and interested in gravestones. Now, uh, I happen to have a girlfriend <laughs> a long time ago when I was at college who lived in Leyston in Suffolk. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a very interesting sort of area. She went to the little Baptist chapel there, and she took me to see uh, Aldringham Baptist Chapel that was nearby. And there were very many Victorian gravestones there with interesting and peculiar rhymes on them. Some were poignant, some were strange or even amusing. This is a typical one of them. There's others that almost too... I couldn't read out to you because they're almost too shocking and you think, ah, they can't write that. This is pretty bad. Uh, this is for James Kerridge, 55 years old, died on the March the 23rd, 1872. His languishing head is at rest. Its thinking and aching are o'er. His quiet, immovable breast is, heavy, is heaved by affliction no more. His heart is no longer the seat of trouble and torturing pain. It ceased to flutter and beat. It never shall flutter again. Uh, and so on. So great, they're great uh, epitaphs. Now, there's another couple of epitaphs. I have to say I haven't seen, but I have read about. So this one is in uh, Royal Leamington Spa in Wiltshire, wherever it is. Uh, and there's a graveyard there with an unusual tombstone. And the only thing written on it, there's no name even, it says this. Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now, where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. Oh, dear. Not good. In contrast, there is in St. Paul's Cathedral a plain tombstone that reads, sacred to the memory of General Charles George Gordon, who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, and his heart to God. The difference between the two is the presence and love of God in their lives, which affected everything they did. I, do you know, I see one, I mean, the Bible obviously is God's amazing gift to us. And in that amazing gift, you've got this wonderful little jewel of a book that just sings out to us, sort of across the ages. And Paul, in the middle of writing a treatise on complicated things like 
gifts of the Holy Spirit and the unity of the church and body of Christ, suddenly you can imagine him turning around to his uh, secretary, because uh, he dictated, didn't he, his letters, and saying, do you know what, I really think God wants me to write something about love at this point. And you can imagine the secretary saying, well, you're doing a whole treatise about gifts and unity and not speaking in tongues at the wrong moment or whatever. Don't you think it rather spoiled the flow? And he, no, this is what God wants. And, and that's what he does. And he writes about um, who is the love for, who is the love from, what kind of love is it? And let's consider these together, uh, and we're going to focus on verses 4 to 7, which are about what love is and it isn't. So let's just hear those words again. Anyone who's... Uh, sorry, uh, wrong place. I've come into verse... I've gone back onto the tongues again in chapter 14. Uh, verse 4 of the, uh, chapter 13 says, Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So there we are, and there's 15 positive or negative points there that Paul is making about what love is. Just a word, by the way, about this little handout that I gave you. Um, I remember many years ago, John Withers uh, standing here and saying that he had a really good way of re remembering things about God. So what he did was, he said that when he, this was when he was a, a head teacher in a school in London, when he put, walked past a certain uh, fire extinguisher near the staff room, he remembered that God really loved him as an individual. And when he turned the corner and walked up the main stairs in the school, he remembered that the Holy Spirit was with him all the time. And I thought those things were just great. And, and I really did do it with the fire extinguisher thing. And, and then I thought about this, and I thought this was a nice little visual for, uh, uh, I used it first of all in the wedding, I must admit, and it, it's, I think it's great because it shows us the nine positive things, and that's on the one-way sign, okay, and it shows the six negative things, and that's on the no-entry sign. Okay, so that's what, what it is. That's where I came up with the idea of road signs from John. Uh, so, I came up with this, and pretty, I have to say that pretty much every time now I see a one-way sign or a no-entry sign, I think about the fact that God loves me, and I try to think of one of those individual things. Um, and I hope, maybe, it's just maybe, it's had a relationship, uh, uh, a reaction on my, uh, had an effect on my relationship with others, uh, without affecting my driving too much. Uh, I can certainly tell you where all the, those signs are now around Godalming and Gilpin. At the beginning of chapter 13, Paul talks directly about himself, doesn't he? He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong 
or a clanging cymbal. Now, I, I was really pleased when I came in because I saw the drums were still there. I thought, when I say that, I'm going to ask Dave to crash the cymbal because that, you know, five minutes in, someone might be dozing. Um, but the cymbals are gone, so, oh, yeah, they really have. So, never mind, we can't do the crash of the cymbals. But, uh, and then, after Paul gives his great description of love, he comes back to talking about himself in verse 11, saying, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. So it's fair to say that Paul is writing about himself and about our love for other people. However, in doing that, he's also showing us what God's love to us is like and what our love to God should be like. You're probably aware that the Bible uses four Greek words for love. I'm sure I won't pronounce them properly. Eros for romantic love, philia for brotherly love, storge for family love, and agape for an all-encompassing and self-giving love most perfectly seen in God's love for us. And I did check this out with the Greek, you know, Bible apps do use Bible apps because they've just got everything in it. And you can clearly see that every time Paul uses the word love, it's agape he uses. So he always uses that uh, in that definition of love. So we see those things through the lens of agape love. We see those words through the lens of agape love, which brings the whole dimension to the way we should interact with each other. None of these are written simply and easily because of that, and they're all deep and challenging facets of love. So I think the easiest way to look at these uh, is to look at as the aspects of love and divide them into those which are positive and those which are negative, i.e. what love is not. Now, don't worry, because I'm not going to make 15 points in this talk. Uh, I'm going to make nine, but uh, uh, we'll crack on with the positives and hope the negatives look after themselves. So we start with patience. Right, I'm not he heavily up on Japanese philosophy, but a Japanese philosopher called Daisu Akida said, with love and patience, everything is possible. You know, we learn patience from God, whose very nature is to show patience, love, and mercy. And then we need to show those things in our lives. Jesus told Peter he should forgive and keep on forgiving. Jesus said we love because he first loved us. Stories like the prodigal son and the forgiving father show God's patience and his desire to always let us come back to him. Now, kind, kindness. I wonder if you're a person, you, you like personality tests. For example, like the Myers-Briggs type indicator. I happened to do the Myers-Briggs type indicator at the same time as Peter Herring did, and I clearly remember his four letters that he achieved on that occasion, and uh, that lives in my memory. Uh, so now, you might or might not sit, ask him afterwards, um, and you, uh, you might or might not like that sort of thing. You might or might not think it helps you relate to each other. Jesus didn't 
you know, Jesus didn't speak about his personality. It's hard even to think that Jesus had a particular personality. However, on one occasion, he did talk a little bit about his personality. And he told us that he was gentle and humble in heart. You know, people, I've heard people preach and say, we don't want to talk about Jesus being meek and mild. Jesus said he was meek and mild. Jesus said he was meek and gentle, and that's what he was. And I think that sums up kindness and acceptance. Now, um, for our French friends here this morning, you probably don't understand that bit, so you won't understand what the French bit. Here's a quotation from Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who said, Quel sagesse, Quel sagesse pouvez-vous trouver qui soit plus grand que la bonté? Which you will all know means, uh, what wisdom can you find that is greater than kindness? I believe in this so strongly. When visiting many schools, which I still do, what marked them out for me was the atmosphere of kindness or not. Incidentally, and as a, just a byword, there was no particular correlation between the ages of the children, i.e. The, the types of school, uh, and the amount of kindness. I often found kindness in secondary schools, which was at times absent in infant schools. And I think kindness uh, includes respecting people and treating them as we would be treated. Love always protects. So protection is something uh, that love is. Our love for each other should also be protective. I was preparing a sermon for Mother's Day a good many years ago. And it, I was actually speaking at Holy Trinity Church in Guildford. And three, two days before was the Dunblane shooting. And it was hard getting up and speaking about sort of mothers and, and protecting and all those sorts of things. And what I chose to speak about was call, I called the fierce, nurturing mother love of God. And speaking about Jesus saying to the disciples, how often I would have liked to have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, chicks under her wings. Yes, that can be seen clearly in the family of love, but we need to share it with others too. I mean, the love in this room this morning when I came in was palpable, and, uh, but we need to share that out. Love is trusting. Perhaps the problem here is that although love is trusting, we're not always trustworthy. And perhaps this is where the phrase that Jesus used about being as wise as serpents and as innocent as, as doves is important. But our default position should be always to trust. Trust, I really mean this, trust is a joyous form of loving. It is so joyous to trust. I mean, you can either trust or not trust. Things, being a Christian, and trusting is not an insurance policy. I don't think people who trust or don't trust get burgled less often. The people who don't trust think they do because they put lots of things all over the house to stop it happening, but it doesn't really make much difference, does it? And if you do trust people, you're let down occasionally, but it's joyous for the many, many times when you're not let down. Jesus said, 
that there is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. And it's wonderful when you can trust a life partner or a close friend absolutely, completely. That's a joyous situation to be in. How about hopeful? More and more I think of hope as a supreme Christian virtue. I mean, it's right up there in the top three at the end of this chapter, isn't it? And when things around us seem hopeless, we can hope in God, hope in a God who loved us and gave himself for us. We show love for others by our hoping. I now work with people who are in recovery from drug and alcohol abuse, and my love for them is rooted in the hope that they can change. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And if they relapse, by God's grace, I'm able to maintain a hopeful love for them, even in those desperate circumstances. So, faithful. Love is faithful. Love never gives up on its faith. If love is not faithful, it's not really love. Think about these amazing words from Hebrews, which I'm going to read twice because it's a little... I mean, they're words you know well, but it's a little complicated. And I want you to try and, as you hear these, apply them to love for other people. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. Just think about those words. and As I say, apply them to love of any kind. It's a really good exercise to work that one through. Now, truthful. Uh, the, I suspect a lot of you will have read books by Carhill Gibran, who was a Lebanese writer and poet. My lovely uh, Christian uh, youth leader at Golming Baptist Church gave me his book, The Prophet, for my 21st birthday, and I do warmly recommend that to you. This is what he said about truth. Truth is a deep kindness that teaches us to be content with our everyday life and share with people the same happiness. Love that. Truth is a kindness. It must be the bedrock of all our relationships. And truth, uh, sorry, and uh, it is just like imagining the, someone, else's store, someone else's journey, like walking in their shoes, what we call now empathy. And that is just living, having a truthful relationship with other people. Persevering. Love keeps on loving. Even when love is rejected, love can keep on loving. Sometimes we see families torn apart where there are old grudges uh, and they're not put to rest. I'm reading a good book. I've just, it's a really quick read. I read it um, in, in a day. And it was called... Shabby, what was it called? Downton Abbey. Downton Shabby, it was called. And it was about this American. And he realized, very, he was an actor and a producer in Hollywood, very successful. And he realized he was the last in line for this stately home up between Manchester and Rochdale. Cut a long story short, he sort of gave up all his acting, went to sort of take over this house. It's a very nice book. 
you know, it, it shows British in a good light, which is nice for once. And uh, anyway, so he, however, he got this thing nearly finished. But Phineas Swishburne owned a piece of land. He was a farmer. He owned a, a sort of, they call it a ransom strip. He owned a piece of land that stopped him putting the driveway through to the house. And the only way he could get into the house was sort of going through a college at the back and all that sort of thing. And it just didn't work. And when the college went on holiday, that, those doors were locked. And so, oh, and, and, and so he said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, not the person, but they said, well, the problem is that 500 years ago, one of your ancestors saw one of his ancestors getting some sheep and he fired some arrows near this person. And, you know, and, and since then, the Swishburns have never spoken to the Hopwoods. And, you know, oh, dear. And, and, you know, how sad when you hold on to grudges like that. Um, here's a great quote from a lady called Selena Frederick, who is from Washington State, USA. Uh, uh, and she runs a Christian website with the scary name Fierce Marriage. It's sort of worth a little visit if you're brave enough. It's a good website, really, but it's very interesting. Anyway, she says this about persevering. Again, it's one of those ones you've got to think about. Perfect love perseveres in the presence of imperfection. Perfect love perseveres in the presence of imperfection. Isn't that just great to know that God perfectly loves us, even though we keep on being imperfect? We've got to, and we have to keep on, keep on keeping on in just our love for each other and love for God. And so finally, the living, uh, uh, this is from the New Living Translation of the Bible. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. So love goes on forever and is eternal. God's love for us is eternal. I don't think it would be particularly profitable for any of us to, uh, for us to go through uh, what it's like to be rude, jealous, arrogant, irritable, irritable, hold grudges, or give up on people. Um, you know, you, you all know what that means. And but Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And he also said, others will know you are my disciples by your love for each other. So for each of us, this is our challenge, our charge, to live the way of love in all that we say and do, with all we meet, and those we find hard to like, as well as those who show us love. So you could pin that up in your blue or somewhere and have a look at it from time to time. Just keep on loving. And remember, each time you see those traffic signs to focus on one aspect, aspect of love and try not to drive into too many one-way streets. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word, the Bible. We thank you.